You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
lion. Today, we're going to hear an interview I did yesterday with Brad Werner, who is an ordained Zen priest, a punk musician, filmmaker, and author of numerous books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, There Is No God and He's Always With You, Don't Be a Jerk, and his latest book is It Came From Beyond Zen, a new translation of the writings of the great 13th century Zen master Dogen. Brad Warner has a somewhat irreverent and humorous style that makes these deep, obscure, and ancient writings understandable and enjoyable for everyone. So you're an ordained Zen priest. Yeah. You're also a punk musician. Uh, yep. yep. And a filmmaker. Uh, sometimes, yeah. I got a friend who makes movies, and then I've made a couple myself. Very low budget. Which came first for you, punk music or Zen practice? I guess the punk thing came first. I was a teenager, and then I kind of discovered... Uh, punk rock. I, I was living in rural Ohio, and it was. It took a long time to filter through. And what I liked about it was the honesty of it. And uh, when I discovered Zen, I, I found the same sort of honesty in Zen that uh, that I found in punk. But I found it. I, I felt like it took it several steps further, and that was interesting to me. So, how did you get into Zen Buddhism? I, very much by accident. I was a freshman at Kent State University, and I took a class. I signed up for this class called Zen Buddhism without really knowing what it was. I um, I just took this class, and I, I found it really fascinating because it was the, it just blew my mind as being the most direct and honest thing I'd ever encountered. So I decided to keep pursuing it. And you ended up going to Japan. Yeah, that's right. I I went there not exactly for Zen reasons. I I had a degree by then. I'd finished my degree, and I I went over to get a job as an English teacher, and just through happenstance found this Zen teacher who who I ended up really liking a lot, and he's the one that convinced me to ordain. I didn't really wasn't really interested in ordaining, but uh, but he was interested in me ordaining, so I did it. So what does it mean to be an ordained Zen priest, and how has that changed or, or affected your life? Well, I, you know, it's hard to say what it means. That was my problem with it when my teacher first started talking about it, because I didn't know what it meant. And I guess it, it means that a teacher uh, has confidence enough in you that that teacher thinks you can carry on the the teaching and as far as it's affected me I, I don't know I just I at first I didn't do anything I got ordained and for like a year I didn't do anything with it I kept the same job I did the same thing and he's the one that convinced me my teacher is the one that convinced me to write a book and I wrote a book thinking well this book isn't going to go anywhere but the book actually did go somewhere and I've been kind of uh, 
trying to figure out ever since what it means, because it's not, I don't think Zen Buddhism has a clergy in the sense that the Catholics or the Presbyterians or whatever have a clergy. It's sort of a, it's, it's more, uh, it's more loose than that. There's, there's less sort of corporate oversight, and you just have to kind of figure out for yourself what it means to be ordained. So what was the first book that you just mentioned? The one that I wrote? Yeah. Uh, was uh, Hardcore Zen. So I, I had been trying to be an author. I thought maybe I would write science fiction, and I'd written a lot of things that didn't get published. And I wrote this book about Zen on the urgings of my teacher that I thought, well, if my other books didn't get published, this one sure won't get published. And, and, it, and I, got, I, I found somebody who wanted to publish it, which surprised me to no end. And, uh, yeah, and so I put out what, five other books about Zen since then, including the new one, which is called It Came From Beyond Zen. You've come up with great book titles, like Sit Down and Shut Up, Don't Be a Jerk. And there's, there's another one that I'll probably be asking you about later, God Doesn't Exist and he's always with you? Yeah, always there is no God, and he's always with you, yeah. Right. So that's another interesting thing. Uh, the term priest is uh-huh. is kind of ironic in this sense. In this sense, yeah. Yeah, well, considering the, the Western use of the term priest. Yeah, I, you know, we're kind of stuck with this term invented by the, the Catholic religion to describe what we do, and it doesn't really fit, because we're nothing, Zen priest is nothing like a Catholic priest, except they, except there is a tendency to wear black by mm-hmm. both sorts of priests. But yeah, occasionally you function like a priest does, and I, I've never uh, officiated a funeral ceremony, but you could do that. I've officiated a couple of weddings. And so those things happen, but the, the actual job of the Zen priest is a little different because I'm trying to kind of help people along. I don't feel that I am better or above them or, or more special because of this ordainment. I feel like we're all fellow travelers in a, in a kind of sea of, of confusion that we're trying to, to come to terms with, and, mm-hmm. and that's where I see my role. Mm-hmm. So. What's the difference between a a pre a Zen priest and a Roshi? Well, the the term Roshi literally means old teacher, so it's usually a, it's a, it's an honorific, often used. I, I lived in Japan for eleven years, so a lot of this is colored by living in Japan. And for example, in Japan, you would never call yourself Roshi. That sounds too grandiose to apply to yourself. Whereas in America, I've, I actually remember a few years ago somebody introducing herself to me as I'm you know, so-and-so Roshi. And, and I bristled at that a little bit because you never call yourself Roshi. That, that's weird. That's like an honorific that somebody else calls you. Uh, so, but it, Roshi generally means somebody who has uh, become a so-called master. And, and, and I, I suppose I could use the term Roshi because I... I jumps through all the hoops and things that, that a Roshi goes through. But I wouldn't call myself Roshi because it just seems rude mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. So, all well, I don't know about all these books, but the latter books anyway, Don't Be a Jerk and It Came From Beyond Zen, are 
are essentially sort of scholarly works for non-scholars on the writings of the, the 13th century Zen master Dogen. Yeah. How did you, how did Dogen enter your life and what does his work represent to you or why have you focused so much on Dogen? Well, I think he's an interesting character. I guess I first, I first heard of him from my, my first Zen teacher was an American guy named Tim McCarthy, and he was ordained in the lineage of Dogen and, and talked about Dogen sometimes. But where I really got into Dogen was in Japan. I, I had this teacher, Gudo Nishijima, who at the time I met him was working on what was only the second complete English translation of Dogen's big book called Shobo Genzo, The Treasury of the True Dharma I. And he was, of course, very deeply interested in Dogen and his work and was working hard on translating it. So I got into it through him. And Dogen's an interesting character in that he lived and wrote 800 years ago, and he established a temple in Japan that spawned a lot of sub-temples and became a very popular sort of, I guess you'd say, religious movement. We could argue about whether it's religious or not, but it became a, a huge thing in Japan. And Dogen was revered as its founder, but his writings, which, which to me are the most important thing he left behind, were, were kind of ignored or just kind of forgotten. And it was only in the early 20th century that there was a major revival, like a popular revival. I wouldn't even say revival, because Dogen's works had not been read outside of this small cadre of, of Zen scholars and Zen priests up until the 1920s, even in Japan. And it, his stuff didn't get translated into English until the, the 60s. And, but it's amazing stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's like this lost philosophical treasure, and, and I, I think it's worth getting into, because I think he was way ahead of his time. So in writing about Dogen and translating his work, you you use a kind of irreverent modern style of your own. Yeah. I guess I'm lucky in that I am writing in a time when there are now maybe three or four really good translations of Dogen's work in English. If you want to find a nice sort of standard translation, it's easy, which allows me the freedom to do something different. And, and what I thought is a lot of the translations of Dogen are done by Asian religious studies scholars, and even my teacher's translation is extremely scholarly and very difficult to read. But I don't think that Dogen, as understood or heard by his original audience, was quite that difficult. I mean, it was difficult probably even to his original audience, but at least it was in their own language and in their own vernacular. So there wasn't this extra hurdle of cultural stuff to get over before you could figure out what was behind that. And I just, what I mainly am trying to do is remove all that layer of, of you know, you have to be a scholar to understand this reference, or you have to have a background in Japanese to understand that word or whatever. And, and get rid of that, and then present it to uh, a usual audience. And the other thing I, I think that gets lost in Dogen, and this is a little speculative on my part, but when I read Dogen, I think he 
uses a lot of humor. And most of the translations don't bring that out. But he's always making puns and strange allusions, which I think probably got a laugh from his original audience. I, I don't know for sure, again, because I wasn't there. And, and I try to put a little bit of that back in it and try to be, you know... I, I don't think we have to make this such a precious thing, you know. It's, it's, just, it's just about life, and, and that's what he was talking about. He was trying to explain his view of life uh, that's, that's unique, but I think very realistic. Dogen used rather strange and obscure language, and you say that he, he also contradicted himself at times yeah. in his writings. Was he doing any of that deliberately to mess with people's way of thinking? I think so, yeah. Because if you, if you kind of study Western Aristotelian logic and things, one of the things that we learn, even if we don't learn it overtly, it's kind of embedded in our, our way of thinking that the contradiction is a bad thing. And even the word contradiction has kind of a negative connotation anytime you use it. But what Dogen discovered, or maybe found some other way, was that he that, that life is contradictory. And I, and I think if you look at life, it is contradictory. No, no set of words can ever describe any situation, even the most mundane situation, like eating a sandwich, you know, something very everyday like that. Even those things can be described thousands of contradictory ways, and they're all true. So Dogen tries to bring this out in his language, and yeah, he is trying to kind of mess with you by, you know, sort of pulling the rug out from under you. He'll say one thing and then say it's complete opposite. So once you figure out what he's saying, then he tells you, no, it's not like that. It's like this. You know, it's very weird stuff sometimes. And of course, he's also talking about some very obscure things. He's attempting, well, he's using words to describe things that are essentially indescribable, and he's using a lot of metaphor. And obviously that would make things very difficult for anyone who's trying to translate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a bear to translate. But, you know, the, the thing is, I, I think he's pointing... One, one of the things he says over and over in his work is that the answer you're seeking is right in front of you. You're just missing it. And, and he, he kind of keeps pointing, you know, it sort of seems like his envisioned audience, or maybe the audience right in front of him as he was writing these things, are kind of looking for something hidden in, in life, that they think that there's a hidden meaning. And he's saying, no, the meaning of life isn't hidden. It just can't be put into a nice little package that you can carry around and repeat for yourself whenever you like. It's, it's actually something... Uh, that that exists right in front of your face. The meaning of life is right there, which is kind of hard to accept sometimes. Right, and it's not something that we can put in thinking terms, that we can chew with our thinking mind. Yeah, because it, it changes. You know, it, it's sort of this living thing that that resists being pinned down. But that doesn't mean you can't, kind of come to terms with it. I, I think you can. It's just you, one of the things you have to accept is that you'll never figure it out. I mean, not, not in terms of, you know, coming up with a formula to explain it all. Mm -hmm. Zen seems to be about 
direct experience. It's kind of a, an, an austere tradition in that, like many years ago, I remember hearing the uh, description of enlightenment, the mm-hmm. old master being asked, what, what is enlightenment? And he says, well, before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. And after enlightenment, I chop wood and I carry water. Yeah, that's kind of it. And even that chop wood and carry water, I love that metaphor, except it's, you know, it's very old and it's not our experience. You know, a lot of us have never (laughs) chopped wood or carried any water bigger than a little plastic bottle of it. Uh, Whereas in in the time that that was written, that was how you heated your house and how you got anything to drink. (laughs) You know, you had to go down to the stream and carry it. So one of the things I'm trying to do with my books is, is take those metaphors and substitute other ones that might be more in line with what ordinary folks these days encounter. You know, I, I think I put eating cereal in one of them, and things like that. Yeah, you say eating cornflakes and... Eating cornflakes. And doing the dishes. That's right. Yeah, that's the one I use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe now is a good time to get into the opening chapter, which I enjoyed very much. It's funny the way you started. You said that you wouldn't tackle the really complicated stuff until later in the book. Then you say, "Well, I, I lied. I lied. I'm <laughs> going to start with <laughs> right from the beginning with the non-dual stuff with yeah. the chapter on it, which is actually the the title of the book. It came from Beyond Zen. So, yeah. so talk about this it and what it's all about." It's really difficult, and it's one of my favorite chapters that Dogen wrote, and it's it's one that, that I don't see a lot of people examining very closely, but I like it because he uses this word inmo, which is a Chinese word that he picked up because he lived in China for, for a few years, and it it, it just means it. it it's, a, it's, it's one of these words you use when you you know, you don't know the name of something, and you just say, well, it's over there, or it's 9 o'clock, or something like that. You don't really, you know, it's this kind of vague word. But he uses it to describe something that I think people in, in mystical traditions within Christianity and Judaism and Islam and, and Western religions in general use to describe God. And And I'm fascinated by this chapter because generally people think of Buddhism as a religion without God. Sometimes that's the, the definition, the short definition you get of, of Buddhism. is It's a religion without God, and people go, ooh, wow, that's weird, a religion without God. And, and in a sense, there is, there is no God in Buddhism as an anthropomorphized figure that you, you know, worship and, and stuff. But if you read this essay by Dogen, you can see that he's talking about something fundamental in the universe that... that is the basis of everything and is and can be said to be alive. The, the life that we have is a reflection of this bigger life of, of something fundamental to, to everything, to every atom and, and quark and whatever in the universe contains some aspect of, of it. And, and he says things like, we are the tools which it uses to perceive itself and things like that as a way to describe what, what humans are, what everything is. I just think it's a, a really interesting chapter, and I, I stuck it at the beginning, for one thing, because I used it as the title of the book, and I didn't think it was fair to keep the title chapter to the end. 
but also it sets the stage for a lot of the other things that he gets into in the book. And, and yeah, it's a bit of a brain twister, but as you must have seen in the intro, I kind of apologize. I say, well, <laughs> it'll get easier after this chapter, and, and that's kind of what I did. I kind of started hard, then went to the easy stuff and built up again to the more difficult pieces. Well, I was glad that you did because I, I like the non-dual stuff. I, I like what people consider to be the hard stuff. I find the other stuff to be not nearly as interesting, although I have to say that in some of your other chapters, particularly the one on essentially talking about the practice of Zazen, I think you get just as deep into it and the non-duality because it essentially is at the root of all of this. Yeah, I think so. And, and it's, it's something as I've been interested in since I was a, a little kid. It was, I can remember kind of looking at this world that I found myself inhabiting in this body that I, you know, had or inhabited or was. You know, I wasn't sure what the best way to understand it was. And, and going, what, what is this? Like, what... Everybody else seems really content to kind of just accept the situation and not question it too deeply. But I, I found I couldn't escape questioning it deeply. I was just kind of like, what? Because I, I think that deeply questioning it helps you come to terms with it. And the only thing Zen, well, not the only thing, but one of the great things Zen has done for me is give me the the understanding that I can keep questioning it, and that's valuable, but expecting an answer is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but the questioning itself is, is interesting, because through, through looking at it very carefully, you, you discover aspects that you had not discovered before, and those can help you navigate life, I think. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are some of the, the essential questions that you we're asking yourself, and that are generally asked in the Zen tradition, and perhaps all of the Buddhist traditions. Yeah, it's, it's who am I? You know, that's one, you know, who am I, what am I? Because you, you kind of, and, and what you are resists definition, but we have an experience, a kind of visceral experience that, that you and I are having, and anybody listening to this is having, of being someone, of being here, of having an experience of listening to a couple of people talk about weird stuff on, you know, and we kind of, generally, I, I think people build up a picture, I think we all do, of what that is, of what I am, and it usually involves a lot of limitations, I'm this and not that, you know, I'm a good person and not a bigot, you know, or, or something like that, you know, you have a lot of a lot of definitions, I have blonde hair and not blue or 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 something like that. But if you if you start to look into this I, this sort of center that you think is sort of something you take for granted, you find that it's it's intimately connected with everyone and everything else. I think for most of us who get into this practice, you can hear that, and it can you know often sound lovely. But when you kind of go into it, my initial experience of it was a kind of terror. You know, like I'm a you know, I'm connected with everyone else doesn't just mean I'm connected with the birds and the bees and the butterflies and, and all the wonderful things, but to all the negative things as well, you know, to the terrorists and to the bigots and, and to the, you know, all the other stuff is also part of me. And 
And you end up trying to kind of look for a way to balance all that and hopefully come out on the side of goodness, you know, for want of a better term. Well, I'm really curious to hear how you came to the realization that we are connected and interconnected with everything. Well, you know, it's something that you hear. If you, if you get into this Buddhism stuff, then or otherwise, it's one of the things that's just kind of always said. And when I heard it, I thought, well, yeah, maybe, I don't know. You know, or, or maybe on some weird level, I sort of imagined there was a cosmic, uh, I don't know, exchange system <laughs> up there in the sky in which I was connected with everything, but not this me sitting here on this chair right now. I felt very disconnected. And through a lot of sitting through a lot of this meditation practice, a lot of that fell away, and it just became kind of apparent in a way that it's really hard to explain, but once you, once you get, get the feel of it, it becomes the most obvious thing in the world. It becomes the, it, it, then your feeling of separation becomes the thing that you question. But, I mean, obviously both exist. Because I'm different from you, and 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 I'm different from the listeners, and and there is a there is a difference, but those those differences are are mostly superficial. They don't they don't extend very far. Yet we tend to assume they do. We tend to assume an eternal separation. I think most religions I encountered when I was young assumed that they assumed, you know, I would die and go to heaven, but I would still be this same individual me in heaven, you know, but not any more connected than I was in life. But uh, the Buddhist idea isn't like that. It's, it's that there is this deep connection, and that if you turn away from that sense of separation, what you find is connection everywhere. And that's real interesting. I'm speaking with Brad Warner. He's a Zen priest, a punk musician and filmmaker, and the author of numerous books, including Don't Be a Jerk, and this new book, It Came from Beyond Zen. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Buddhist idea is that there is this deep connection, and that if you turn away from that sense of separation, what you find is connection everywhere. And that's real interesting. It is, and I'm a few years older than you, and I've been doing meditation practice for a little over 40 years, and yeah. and that that realization, that visceral experience of really genuinely feeling connected to everything didn't come until relatively recently. Yeah, it, it, it takes a while, I think, for, for most people. It, 
it, it was just a, it was just words on a page for me for years and years. And then one day it just kind of fell into place. And I went, Whoa, that's all these things I've been reading. They're actually true, <laughs> you know, but I think you have to come into it gradually because if I had had a glimpse of that too early, and I think maybe I did in my own personal case, it would have just terrified me, and it did in my personal case, and I and I ran away from it. But if you if you get comfortable with it, then you can kind of let go and realize that when you let go, nothing terrible happens. That's the amazing thing. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a mysterious thing, and it it certainly goes beyond our conditioned thinking and the way we've grown up to see the world around us. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And, and you know, I think we, we just kind of take in a certain way of looking at life that, you know, our parents and our society and whatever other influences happen to come into our lives give us, and I, I don't think people are malicious in, in giving us this worldview. It's the worldview that they have, and it's what's worked for them. But you, you come to discover that's wrong. And in my own case, the first inklings that my worldview was completely mistaken were, were kind of scary. You know, I kind of went, whoa, I've depended on this way of looking at things, and now I'm seeing that that's not really true. So I'm going to have to figure out what to do about that, you know? And, and so it's a gradual process of, of getting acclimated to it. Yeah, the conditioning has been like the blind leading the blind and then spending most of my life unraveling all of that stuff and gradually lifting veil after veil after veil or falsity after falsity after falsity until you start to see something something other than all of that stuff. Yeah, and what and what's left behind after that is something that's very difficult to communicate and and you're kind of stuck. I mean, this is why Dogen uses a lot of metaphor and similes and things. He's trying to describe something that we generally don't have an experience of. As you said earlier, in addition to this being something that you can't really describe in words, it's also an experience that's continually changing. It's very fluid. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely it. And the minute you try to pin it down, then you realize, oh, no, that's not, that's not it. There, there are times when you see something, some aspect of it, that you go, okay, that's it. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of my earlier experience with meditation was these sort of blind alleys where you go, okay, now I got it. <laughs> and that was the value of having a teacher because I had a, I had a teacher, I had a couple of teachers who would go, no, no, keep working on it. <laughs> you know, you, you get very excited and go, whoa, I figured out the great secret. And, you know, two days later, you're like, what was that great secret again that I figured out? <laughs> well, it's very interesting that you just put it in that way because my sense is as soon as somebody says, I've got it, I figured it out, Almost by definition, that person is revealing that they're already hung up on, on something that they just experienced in the past. It's a fascinating kind of dilemma between getting caught up in... I mean, we, we want to understand. 
we we think mm. our life depends on figuring things out and finding answers and it's so hard to be satisfied with just good questions or to even recognize the value of good questions yeah that's the thing you know you have to keep questioning and the worst excesses in the world of spirituality are brought on by people who had some kind of experience maybe a genuine and very profound experience but got stuck there and keep insisting on well this is it this explanation is the one that's you know that's the be all and end all and and I'm going to you know keep digging into that or you know the the other interesting thing is the ego is such that it can grasp onto anything at all to enhance itself which I think the ironic thing is that even the understanding that ego is not real can be grasped by the ego and made into something to enhance itself, you know? Yes. I've, I've watched myself do that, and I've watched other people do that, and it's really fascinating. Yeah. I have dissolved my personal ego. <laughs> or even I've recognized that my ego doesn't exist, and how proud I am of realizing that I don't exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who doesn't exist? <laughs> I don't. Me. Just me. Me. And what a yeah. and what a great coup that I just achieved by realizing yeah. that. Yeah. It's a funny little vicious cycle of a trap. Yeah, and and, and it, nearly everybody falls into it at some point if you if you do this practice seriously. And it's nice to have somebody who can recognize that you've done that and kind of give you a little kick. <laughs> out of it. Mm. That's, that's, I think, the greatest value of a, of a teacher in this tradition is, is just somebody who can go, yeah, just... It has to be somebody you trust, and, and sometimes people get to a point where they figure they've gone beyond all teachers and nobody can tell them because they've, they've reached the ultimate. And, uh, boy, that, those, some tragic things happen around that, and uh, that's kind of sad. I mean, I'm just thinking like cults and things, you know, people will get involved in, geez, I just met somebody the other day who was talking about somebody who got involved in one of those and, and sold everything and, you know, just went into this terrible downward spiral because they were convinced that somebody, you know, some particular person had the answer and, and would give it to them if they only paid <laughs> the proper price. It's kind of weird how that happens, because it often happens with extremely intelligent people. It, it seems to to me that, that people who have PhDs and stuff are almost often more susceptible to that sort of thing than, than just regular folks are, which I think is interesting, too. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, an addiction to certainty and, and answers that give a sense of certainty. Yeah, that might be it. And, and I think that, that need for certainty is an interesting thing if you look at human evolution. My suspicion is that very on in the evolution of humankind, we found that if we could be sure of something, that gave us an advantage over animals that would eat us, you know. And we, we could figure out things that they couldn't figure out because we had this kind of cognitive ability that most animals seem to lack or seem to be lagging behind us in that. And so we, we focus very strongly on certainty, 
on being sure of something and then and then acting. But there are aspects of life in which that doesn't work, you know, and, and one of them is kind of figuring out what the ultimate meaning and purpose of life is. You can't be certain of it. You, you can kind of be momentarily certain of what to do next, which I think is, is an interesting phenomenon that you get into with meditation. But beyond that, this kind of great certainty is elusive. You know, you just sort of have to trust that it's going to work out somehow, you know. Well, speaking of that, in Zen, what is the intention or purpose of meditation and doing this practice? Yeah, that's a hard one, because the way when you're trained in Zen meditation, one of the first things you learn is that it's goalless, that there is no goal, that there is no purpose to it, or there, there's nothing you're you're trying to achieve with it. And that's difficult because I think we all learn that doing things is about achievement. So you, you work a job in order to get a paycheck and you go to school in order to graduate and you, you know you, all these other things. So you look at meditation and go, well, where's the graduation or where's the reward going to come or what, what am I, what am I shooting for? And, and if you have a good teacher, they'll tell you that you're not shooting for anything <laughs> and, and you go, well, what, then why am I doing this? You know, mm-hmm. That, that was often my question. I could feel that the meditation was useful and beneficial in my life in, in a lot of other ways, but, you know, I wanted there to be a, an, end, an end game or a goal or some prize that I was reaching for, but, but I realized after a while that there wasn't, you know, even even sort of enlightenment experiences are, are fleeting. You know, they, they happen and then they, they go away, and you, you're kind of left with, oh, okay, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's also um, this thing about sitting zazen to enter a balanced state. What does that mean? Yeah, that was, um, that was something my teacher used a lot. He... He really loved the metaphor of balance. So his his contention, which I always sort of took with a grain of salt, although I thought it was interesting, was that it was about a balance of the autonomic nervous system. He read a few books about that and felt that the, the, the two have the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems needed to be in balance and that this was a this was what we were working for, where each side was as strong as the other. I don't know enough about the human nervous system to say whether that's correct, but I do feel, for example, when you're doing, whenever I describe what zazen is, I often say it's a balance posture. You know, in yoga, you have the balance poses like the tree pose and things like that where you know if you're off balance because you fall over. But in zazen, you're you're sitting, so you're not going to fall over, but there is a sense of balance there, physical balance. And I think this physical balance lends itself to a kind of mental and emotional balance. And and when that happens, you're neither too hot nor too cold. You know, it's this kind of it's the Goldilocks zone, I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. That that everything is is just in balance and therefore can function at its optimum level because everything is kind of you know where it needs to be. But I think most of us, including myself, live most of our lives, you know, off balance. And sometimes you're just a little off balance and you can get by. 
and sometimes you're way off balance and 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 you can't do anything and and I think we've all had situations where that's happened well there's that metaphor of of an airplane heading towards its destination is actually flying off target virtually the entire time and just making continual course corrections. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that, but that makes sense. You know, you might have a kind of, I don't know if I use the word aim just now, but I, I, I figure aim is a slightly better word than goal. So you kind of head in a direction that you hope works right, but you always have to adjust because your initial trajectory might be a little off. I think, I think the problem with a lot of people is they get stuck on the initial trajectory that they've set themselves upon and get really stuck in that. And then when the course correction, to continue the metaphor, becomes necessary, they're unable to, to correct their course because they, they're so into the course that they've chosen. Right. And we're constantly learning, and the aim may be changing, perhaps in subtle ways, perhaps in, in very dramatic ways. And in the science of epigenetics, it's essentially the way I've heard it described, and, and it makes a lot of sense to me, is that each individual life form or mm-hmm. human being is in constant conversation, dialogue with the world around it or, or around ourselves. And each is being affected by the other and expanding, growing, and evolving through that continual evolving relationship. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't know anything specifically about epigenetics, but I I do feel that that's the case, that we're always... I have a lava lamp at home, you know, it's a very retro thing. But I, I sometimes look at that and I think, oh, that's kind of like me. You know, you've got these little shapes. I think they're wax inside the lava lamp that keep changing and morphing and stuff. And I feel like if you if you allow life to be what it is, you find that that's that's what you're doing. You know, you're never a fixed thing. You might be momentarily, or you might play a role that is momentarily necessary to get a certain thing done. But you you've got to be able to change and to adapt in order to to make that work. And, you know, people who can't adapt can sometimes get by, but I think you'll, you'll do better if you're able to adapt to the, to the ever-changing life situation. Yeah, and one of the characteristics of the ego is to try and maintain a sense of continuity and certainty that is immune to all those continual changes and, and change itself. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's what, you know, that's what movement is. That's what uh, anything is. So in that sense, we're, we're waging a continual war against reality. Yeah, and that's, and that's kind of a shame. You know, there is, it, it's fascinating to me because there, there, is, there is something, there's obviously something that continues because it's, it would not be wrong to say that you and I are the same people now as we were when we started this conversation. But there's also the other aspect in which we're not. You know, every, everything that changes adds something and maybe takes another thing away from who we are. And then, and, and then you've got that. But 
but we also carry an image of ourselves in our minds. And I, I think everybody does this, and I think there's nothing intrinsically wrong with doing that because it helps it helps you get by, you know, at least you know what your name is, you know, from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. But but uh, I think I think what happens to probably the majority of people in the world is they get really stuck in that image and they think that that image that they've created of themselves is real. And when you think that image is real, then you'll do all sorts of things to try to defend it or try to aggrandize it or try to get something that you think you deserve, or uh, there's all sorts of stuff you'll do based on this self-image. But when you realize that the self-image itself is, is just a, a phantom, you know, it's just, it's just an invention, then enhancing it or making it win against the other guy or whatever else you're, you're trying to do, it just becomes kind of silly. Why am I indulging in all this competition and, and fighting over something that, that doesn't even exist? You know, and it, you can kind of relax and go, okay, well, I don't need to fight for that anymore. Right, and questioning, well, what is it that I'm trying to gain, and what am I really gaining from that? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, too, because, you know... And, and we live in this world where ego rules everything, and, and, and you see it all around you. And if you step out of that, you know, one of the first things that happens is everybody thinks you're weird <laughs> because you're, you're no longer playing this game. But you, you know, I guess that would be, uh, sorry, this just kind of popped into my mind. Maybe that's the difference between the punk thing and the Buddhist thing, you know, the, the sort of punk rock way of looking at things is I'm stepping out of, of normal society and then being very proud of that and going, look at me, I've stepped out of normal society. And I think that's a good first step for, for a lot of people. But then after a while you go, well, now I've just stepped into another identification instead of really digging into the, the very nature of identification itself. And, and when you get into that, that's a whole rabbit hole <laughs> right, right there. Right. You when, you, when you stop stepping out or you stop questioning because you think you found something that you can stick with. Yeah. And if you stop questioning, then I think that's where you get into trouble. I mean, I've even, you know, I, I, you asked earlier about being ordained as Zen priest and I, and I did go through that process. But if I, if I stopped there, I don't think I'd be being true to Zen itself. If, if I just accepted Zen at face value, like any book that claims to be a Zen book, I just go, okay, well, this is the, the canonical Zen literature. I must believe it. Uh, I don't even do that. I, I, I think, well, you know, this could be right. Even, even looking at Dogen, I, there are times when I kind of look at him and I go, I don't know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. maybe. <laughs> uh-huh. And his writings are certainly obscure enough that it's not that hard to go there. No, it's not that hard at all. And when you when you read the sort of standard translations, even the really good ones, you're just kind of going, "What the? <laughs> what are you talking about?" You know, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like just to wheel it back to what we were talking about before, I, I think often often the problem is just language or or some metaphor that's just hard to understand. And if you if you go in and figure out 
oh, okay, this is an old Chinese story that's analogous to you know some other story that we have in our culture. Because often, often cultures just have different versions of the same things, you know, the same basic stories that, that they tell each other and, and learn from. And, and sometimes it's just as simple as that. And sometimes you're just going, well, I don't know. Right. If, if we haven't had the experience that he's pointing to, we have no reference point. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the trouble. You know, he's kind of dug into himself at a, at a very deep level, and he's presenting his, his findings. And you're just going, well, you know, and, and, and his findings, you know, what he discovered are kind of seen through a personal lens that he had, being a person of his time and place and having the experiences that he's had. So he's got to frame them in a, in a particular way, which doesn't mean that's the only way to frame those, which is why you can find deep truths in every religion, and not even just every religion. One of the things I had fun with in, in my first book, in Hardcore Zen, was finding little true bits, like pieces of dialogue from a movie or, or something like that, that I thought expressed the same idea as the great Zen teachings were expressing, but in a, in a different language. And I think you can, once you know what you're looking for, <laughs> which may be a mis, you know, misconception already, but once you kind of have an idea where it's at, you'll see it everywhere. Yeah, and there was a story that you referred to in It Came From Beyond Zen about the old Zen master, I think his name was Enchi Dayan, or yeah. it was his. It was the story of of his thirty years on Isan Mountain. Oh right, yeah. Eating Isan cornflakes and yeah, yeah, and living with all his insecurities and and saying that during all that time he didn't learn a damn thing about Zen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's wonderful. In, and in a way, you can kind of get that he's playing with you. That he maybe he did learn something, but he's he's also trying to say that what he learned wasn't like what you'd expect. Like there's another phrase Dogen uses that says nobody says this is realization exactly as I expected it, mm-hmm. you know. And if you do, then that's probably not a useful realization. The realization implies that you're seeing something you've never seen before, and if it's something that you expected to see well, then and that's probably not what you want to go into. Right. I would love to jump toward the end of the book. The last two chapters are very interesting. The nature of reality and, you know, the old issue of whether it's all in the mind or, or not. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And then the thing about recognizing or explaining a dream within a dream. But let's, let's start with, with the nature of reality and and its relationship in our mind. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, because, and it's one of the things that's very often misunderstood in Zen and Buddhism in general, is a lot of people think that Zen is some kind of philosophy that says that it's all in your mind. It's just kind of solipsistic, I think is the philosophical term for that, the, the idea that everything is just in your mind. And the Buddhist aren't really saying that. They're saying that all you know is your mind. 
So that's one aspect of it. So the only thing you, you know about the, the world is what your mind gives you. Like, you know, I recently came across that idea that there aren't really colors out there, which I think is a crazy notion, but that it's just the, the mental interpretation of certain aspects of the external reality make us see things as having colors, but there aren't really colors out there, which is just like, you know, what? What are you talking about? But that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that what we call mind is all-pervasive. It's something that everything is infused with some level of, of mind. Even Dogen's favorite little phrase is senses, tiles, pebbles, and walls, or something like that. That's the one he always uses. But he's saying even just objects, he'll say those are mind as well. Senses, tiles, walls, and pebbles are also mind, you know, is one of his little sayings. And you go, well, what does that mean? You think I'm just imagining those things? But he's not saying that. He's saying that they're aspects of the same mind that you imagine sits inside your head having experiences separate from those things, which is, you know, this is getting into the really deep, crazy sort of, Dogen, which I love, but when you first kind of put your toe into the water, that's probably not the place to begin, which is why I put those at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really hard for us to wrap our conditioned minds around. But modern science, quantum physics, is actually saying the same thing. It's actually corroborating these ancient perspectives and realizations about the nature yeah, and of reality. Yeah, I find that. Yeah, yeah, I do find that really interesting. And I, I'm reluctant in my own work and writing to say too much about that because I, I, I've seen people just mangle their understanding of physics and say really goofy things, you know, and, and it's very easy to make fun of that. You always see, if you, if you go on social media, some spiritual teacher will, some famous spiritual teacher will say something and then everybody who knows anything about science will jump on and go, ah, you know. So, so I'm a little reluctant, but I do think that's there. I mean, some of these experiments they're doing point to the idea that the physical object and the observer of the physical object are intimately connected and that you can't, you can't remove one or the other from the experiment and have it still mean anything. So there has to be an observer. And maybe this observer is, you know, maybe there's an ultimate observer, if you want to get back to this idea of it, where Dogen seems to... When I read that chapter, I, I think he's kind of describing, you know, I imagine like a sewage system, you know, it's a bad metaphor, but all the water goes into this to this one place and it all feeds back into into a, a specific uh, specific you know, thing that's, I, I used to work in water treatment when I was in, in high school, so maybe that's why I have this, mm-hmm. this metaphor. But, uh, but I think that's kind of what we're doing. We're, we're sort of reporters for God or something. You know, we're, we're kind of the ways in which the universe understands itself is us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important role, and I think that's a role we often don't properly live up to. You know, we, we sort of, imagine that we're something else. We imagine that we're sort of individual chess pieces moving along this inert world that we can just do whatever we want with. 
but that's not the case. We're kind of living an experience of a greater something, and it's good to be able to step aside and let that happen. I'm speaking with Brad Warner. He's a Zen priest, a punk musician and filmmaker, and the author of numerous books, including Don't Be a Jerk, and this new book, It Came from Beyond Zen. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. kind of the ways in which the universe understands itself is us. And I think that's an important role, and I think that's a role we often don't properly live up to. You know, we sort of imagine that we're something else. We imagine that we're sort of individual chess pieces moving along this inert world that we can just do whatever we want with. But that's not the case. We're kind of living an experience of a greater something And it's good to be able to step aside and let that happen. And Dogen refers or quotes the Buddha saying, outside of mind, nothing else exists. But he's not saying that the entire universe is the same as the mind. The universe is still the universe. If you think there's something outside the universe, that's just impossible. Yeah. And that's really interesting because he's like, Sometimes I read that stuff and I go, why are you telling me this, Dogen? Uh-huh. What am I going to do with that? But uh, I, I, think, I, I think you can do something with that. And I, I have this feeling that as more and more people wake up to this, human society will start to shift in, in a direction that I, I wouldn't even try to predict. I think if we can get there, things will improve for all of us, but it's going to take time, and, and part of that is just is just being content. I used to work for a film production company that made Japanese monster movies, and I was having a, a really bad time in the company because there were things I wanted to do or things I thought the company needed to do that weren't being done. And I went to my Zen teacher, and I said, oh, I don't know about this, and I think I'm going to quit and all this. And he said, no, you should keep working. Just be satisfied with small changes. And I thought, that, that applies to life in general. I, that was one of the best things he ever said to me, was that I, you know, I might not be able to change the whole world, but I can, I can just kind of go out and say my truth, and maybe somebody will hear it, and hopefully what I say is true. You know, that's, that's the other thing I have to watch out for. I have to make sure that I'm not kind of getting into my own ego too much and, and putting that stamp on it. Uh, so it's a kind of a weird balancing act that you never win, <laughs> but you can always keep trying. Which reminds me of a line in the book. I don't remember whether it was something that you said or whether Dogen says something to the effect of being satisfied with one's experience before, during, and after. Yeah, 
Yeah, I love that one because I, I thought that's kind of the way we are. We, we're sort of looking for the end of the experience, the result. And my, my teacher had this fascinating thing. I remember having this conversation with him in which he was trying to explain to me his concept that there is no such thing as a result ever. <laughs> and I was going, well, no, there's some such thing as a result. You know, I, I pour some hot water over a tea bag and it results in some tea that I can drink. You know, there's there are results, and he was saying, well, in a conventional sense, you can say that, but you just have the situation as it is now, and that's the reality. And what came before it, well, that's that's real too, but it's it's gone, and you can't get back into it. So, in in the sense of kind of remaining in the present moment, there is no result. So that can kind of guide you in. To me, it's made me happier with everything, because one of the first things that I found, because I was working a regular job at the time, was I was no longer sitting at work going, oh, when is this day going to be over, you know, or when is this meeting going to be finished? I could, I could actually just dive into it and go, this tedious meeting that I don't understand why I'm even having it is in itself interesting, because... Even a thing like that is a unique experience that will never be repeated ever again, you know, and that no one else will ever be in that tedious meeting that you were in, you know. And, and, and even if they were the other people in that meeting, they won't experience it the way you did. So, you know, savor this real experience of being bored out of your skull and wishing you were somewhere else, <laughs> you know. That can be an amazing thing, too. Yeah, like making a meditation out of all the, the little things in everyday life. Yeah, and, and I just find myself, ever since I started doing that, everything is fun. I can even remember being in the hospital with kidney stones, which is a you know supposedly one of the most painful things a person can experience. It, it, it's right up there with gunshots and giving birth, apparently, neither of which I've experienced, but I have had kidney stones. And going, well, there is some level of enjoyment even here, you know, because this pain is amazing, you know. It's amazing to be experiencing such incredible pain. So I find that fascinating to be able to do that. And, and the more I'm able to do that, the, the happier I become. And not that I'm always able to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, that just reminded me that when I've had experiences like that that are so intense that we would never want to have or we would never wish them upon anybody else. But there's some very powerful visceral quality and a sense of immediacy of the quality of presence that, that's unavoidable in those moments that, that's, that, as you say, is very powerful and even enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, after that last kidney stone, I decided I'm never going to have kidney stones again. <laughs> and, you know, I went online and looked at bought a bunch of books on how to prevent kidney stones. and then they, So it's not that I, I want to have that experience again, obviously. But, yeah, you, there's something in there that you go, whoa, this is really interesting. And if you, can, if you can kind of sit with it, maybe you can sit with anything. You know, I, I don't know. You know, there might be something that I'll encounter in life that I just can't deal with at all. But I, I want to try to get to the point where whatever happens, I can find that little bit of joy within it. And people who can do that are, are the people I admire the most, you know, the, the people who can, who can find joy in, in any situation. They're, 
there, I think, the ones who are getting it, you know. And even if that seems a bit too extreme to expect to experience joy, to to be able to be at peace with a situation or a circumstance that is either traumatizing or just so intense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good to be able to. I mean, it's not that you, you know, I'll say it again. Even though we both said it twice already, you don't you don't kind of long for those experiences, or you don't you don't wish them on others, or you don't say, ah, oh, just suck it up, you know, when you see somebody experiencing something like that. But at the same time, in your own experience of it, can you find the way to be totally present even in this experience? That would be, that's the question I kind of ask myself, you know, if, and if I can do that, then I think that's important. Mm-hmm. So moving on to the uh, the dream within a dream thing, mm-hmm. that that's pretty obscure and Another way of putting it is experiencing reality in a dream. I think it's saying the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And and it's that's one of my favorite things that Dogen does is when he talks about dreams because he he's interesting. He he'll he'll say things like uh, if he's criticizing somebody, he'll say, "Well, this this person doesn't." hasn't even ever dreamed of the thing that, that he's pretending to be an expert of. So he has this idea that, that dreaming and reality are two different things. But he, he also says that reality is, in a way, dreamlike. Our, our waking reality may be an experience similar to the experience of, of dreaming. You know, we have, a, we have a dream experience and we know that, you know, we're not really on the Titanic and it's thinking. It's actually, we just have to get up and go to the, use of the toilet. But also everything that you experience in reality has a kind of dreamlike quality. And, and he uses that as a metaphor in this chapter, Muchu Setsumu, which is dream, explaining a dream within a dream is usually how it's translated. And he's, he's describing his own work as a Zen teacher. He's saying that my work as a Zen teacher is explaining a dream within a dream, you know, and I'm dreaming and we're all dreaming and, and we're explaining this dream we're having to each other. And, and yes, there is a difference between going to sleep at night and having a dream and, and this waking reality, and we have to be careful to distinguish the two. That's important. But at the same time, seeing that your understanding of any situation that you're in isn't ever complete and isn't ever final. So in that way, it's a bit like a dream. And it also relates to something you write about in your conclusion, where you refer to another Dogen piece called Kato. Is that... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Twisting Vines is, is what that is. And I, and I felt like I needed to finish the book at some point, so I didn't do that chapter within the book, but it's it's one of the interesting ones. Yeah, and I I, I do have an allusion to it in the, in the end, although I'm racking my brain like, what did I say about Kato? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll refresh your memory. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Kato, which means something like tangled vines or it's complicated, which is about the idea that what exists in my mind about you isn't the same as the you that exists in your mind. And the me that exists in your mind isn't the same as the me that exists in my mind. Yeah. And, and none of them are the real 
you and me. You know, that's that's the funny thing. It's like I have, you know, if I think of a friend of mine, I I might have a lot of ideas about him. If somebody if somebody that I know very closely, you know, I know their birthday and I know I know what what food they like, I know, you know, what to buy them for Christmas and so on. And that's an image that's in my mind of that person. I also have an image in my mind of me, which is more detailed than my image of, of my friend, but it's also just an image. And, and I think most of us don't know that. You know, we think that the image we carry around in our minds of ourselves is the real me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I know the real me, mm-hmm. but I, I think maybe I don't know the real me. You know, yeah. I, there's, there's things I do that surprise me, you know, uh-huh. and we all have that experience. Right, and we're all uh, discovering things about ourselves continually and about, yeah, other, yeah. and about other people and about everything around us. Yeah, and, that's, and I think that's amazing. And I think the, the sad thing is when people decide that they've discovered everything there is to discover and they want to kind of fix it at that. And I, I really feel that a huge portion of society is trying to do that. They're trying to lock down themselves and lock down the world. And then you know, they'll encounter somebody else who doesn't see it that way, and then they have to have a fight with that person. But I think, ah, there's somebody who doesn't see it the way I see it. It doesn't mean I'm right and they're wrong. It might mean I'm right and they're wrong, but it might not. And sometimes even if it doesn't mean that I'm right and they're wrong, well, there is one way of looking at things that works better. You know, I'm particularly, the thing that comes to mind is like racism, but the, the... the best way to view humans is as being essentially all the same and just a different variety of colors, you know, the, and racism is a silly way to look at it. But you can also go, well, that guy sees things differently, and maybe we need to get on the same page. And he's not correct, but it's also, if, if I fight against his view, it might make him hold on tighter to it. So you, you try to find a different way in, which, which you're still trying to, to find the same goal of a common worldview that works and makes everybody happy, but without, you know, punching everybody who, who feels differently. Uh, because punching everybody who feels differently just makes them mad and makes them hold on to their, to their position even harder. So I think it's a world problem that, that we have to kind of address. Mm-hmm. And since we're all in relationship with everyone and everything around us, we have a choice whether we're going to cultivate a constructive and enjoyable, caring relationship or an aggressive and fighting relationship. Yeah. The, the aggressive way never seems to work out very well. I mean, I, I, can, I can get the idea that there's a certain kind of, the idea of healthy competition, for example. I mean, I can see where that can make things better. You know, like the Beatles decided that they had to outcompete Herman's Hermits and eventually produced better music than, than Herman's Hermits. Although I do like Herman's Hermits. <laughs> Being inspired and spurred on by, by what other people are doing and trying to be better or be better than what we have previously done ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think, we, can, I think we can do that, but it, it doesn't need to be aggressive and it doesn't need to to be 
hurtful. That's the thing I, I find. I think, I think creative competition can be a good thing if, if everybody understands that their end goal isn't to beat the other guy, but just to produce the best thing that they can possibly produce. That, that I think, is, is good. And, and, you'll, and you realize that at some level, you can only, you're the best you that exists. And it doesn't matter if there's some category in which you are not the best. Uh, you're still the best you, because there's, there's nothing else you can be, you know? So, so you have to be the best you. And nobody else can be you. Yeah, and that and that's what you contribute to any situation is your unique uh, viewpoint or unique understanding of it. And if you can understand that and go, well, it's not a better. It, it, I don't know. In some cases, it might be a better understanding, but it's not necessarily a better understanding. It's just it's just my understanding. And if somebody else doesn't see it that way, that doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. Um, or it doesn't necessarily mean they're entirely wrong. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. It just means that they're seeing it differently and that, and that maybe we can come together and work out a way you know, that, that, that's somewhere in between our two points of view. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's all kind of complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That's the metaphor of the entangled vines. Right. And yeah, it's he's always arrowroot and wisteria, right? And it's and it's always changing and evolving, or unraveling, or getting more entangled, and and inspiring more unraveling or new unraveling, and we're always also trying to tie things up into, <laughs> you know, we're always trying to figure things out to some degree, even if even if it's totally unconscious, <laughs> and it's ironic yeah. because because eventually we find ourselves needing to untie those things unanchor those things, dissolve the concrete, yeah, no. and and try to rebuild something new that works better. Yeah, that's the the, the part that the uh, that's the part I think that that for me was a was a difficult was that kind of letting go, saying okay, I'm going to have to let go. You know, because like a lot of us, I, I built my whole persona in high school on being, you know, the most unique person. And I even got a little award in my senior year for most individualistic in, in some, uh, like the school paper or something like that. But then to, to say, oh, I've got to let that go too. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to let go of this thing that I hold very precious. Yes. Uh, That's and a hard... when you let it go, you find it's not really gone. Right. And, but it's a very hard thing to think about doing, to conceptualize. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like, oh, if I, if I let go of that, then, then where am I going to be? But if we don't but let once go, you get, we're yeah. stuck, and we can't Yeah, grow. yeah, if you don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's ironic, and it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, the tangled vines of the mind. Yeah, it's, um, it's all fascinating stuff. This is, this is the human condition. Yeah, that's exactly it. And once we kind of find it. I, I have great optimism, even though, you know, every time I look at my little news app on my phone, I, that, gets a, that takes a hit. But I, I feel like the general trend is towards an improved sort of human society. 
and we're going to get knocked down a few more times before we get there, and that sort of worries me. But I, I think we're we're going to keep moving in this direction, and I I think you know future generations will look back at us as like, well, they were kind of on their way to something, but they were pretty crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those difficult things that happen are part of the conversation that we need in order to grow. Yeah, that's the the hard thing is you realize you're going to have to you're going to have to have a conversation with the people that you hate and disagree with and you know maybe with this current American political situation that's really coming to a head that we realize that we got to we got to talk to each other. You know, that's we if if we keep insisting that I'm right and the other guy's wrong, well, we got to live next door to the other guy, <laughs> you know, and we got to we got to make peace with that and, and find some kind of, of compromise position that works for everybody and doesn't hurt uh, a lot of people. That, you know, that, I think that's really important. Yeah, and that thing of we don't, we don't negotiate with terrorists, it doesn't really work because ultimately we, we all share this world together, even if we are yeah. rejecting part of, you know, if we're rejecting others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can... I can see the political standpoint of we don't negotiate with terrorists, and I can I can make sense of that. But but on the ultimate level, we're going to have to, <laughs> you know. I mean, maybe not in the situation where they're holding somebody hostage or whatever, you know, like the, the one of those situations. But you you know the the sort of world situation is we're going to have to find a way to make everything work, and and it can't be completely one sided. You have to let other people have a voice in this thing, and through that, try to find what's actually true and where that'll lead. I really don't know. You know, I don't, I don't think people sort of imagine the future as being like a better version of the present. And, and maybe that's true, but I, I think it's going to be quite different once we get our act together. We're going to have to kind of figure out a, a worldwide sort of cooperation that doesn't leave a lot of people out of the the picture but but it you know but also is true but also is you know workable and real mhm that works to our general mutual benefit yeah yeah and what that is you know that that's hard to say yeah going back to the entanglement it's it's complicated yeah it sure is <laughs> well that sounds like a, a good note to end on. It's It's been really fun talking with you. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, this has been really interesting. You know, I never, when I start one of these conversations, I never know quite what to expect from it, but uh, but I've really enjoyed this one. And I imagine you're, you're probably going to write another book, or you may already be working on one? I'm, I'm sort of working. It's, 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 I'm in the process of kind of, walking, taking long walks and trying to envision what it'll be. And I, I have a pretty good idea. I decided I don't, for my immediate next act, I don't want to do another volume of Dogen translations. I may get back to it eventually. I want to do something a little bit more sort of user-friendly for people who might not know anything. I, I find myself, I, I go around the world and give talks and do all sorts of things, and I find myself encountering people who are very curious about Buddhism who don't know the first thing about it. And I thought, well, maybe I should write a book for, for folks like that who are just new to this and they, they want to figure it out. 
while, while at the same time being a book that isn't boring to people who already know a few things about basic Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Could be like a new Brad Werner style version of Beginner's Mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of it, right now I'm thinking of it almost like a textbook, but then I think, no, I don't want to do a textbook. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of working out where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Well, again, thank you so much for all of your time. This is it has been great. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And that was Brad Werner. He's an ordained Zen priest, a punk musician and filmmaker, and the author of numerous books, including Sit Down and Shut Up, Don't Be a Jerk, and this new book that we've been talking a lot about, It Came From Beyond Zen, which are sort of scholarly works for non-scholars on the writings of the great 13th century Zen master Dogen.
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. This is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Thank you.